When outrage over Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act erupted across the nation last week, local and national media took notice. Journalists from across the country descended on the State House to follow the story as opponents of the law voiced their claim the act would legalize discrimination, particularly against LGBT people. Even as he called for clarifications to the law, Governor Mike Pence reiterated his view that the law did not permit discrimination. Instead, he blamed the public's reaction on what he called reckless and sloppy reporting. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll talk with media experts about news coverage of the now-amended Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and we'll take a look at the impact of social media and drawing attention to the law. We invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Sarah Whitmeyer, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Uh, backlash against Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act has poured into Governor Mike Pence's office from people and businesses across the nation who claimed the law uh, effectively legalized discrimination against LGBT individuals. Governor has insisted that was not ever the intent of the act, and he has, uh, in large part, blamed the media for spreading mis- misconceptions of the law uh, and referred to uh, sloppy reporting and reckless reporting. Today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk with media experts about how the law has been portrayed both in news coverage and on social media and sort of delve into this issue of the criticism by the governor. So uh, we have four guests with us today, and they're all great guests. We have Roy Peter Clark joining us today. He's vice president and senior scholar of the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida. Steve Sanders, a professor in the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Rebecca Townsend, the vice president of the Society of Professional Journalists, the Indiana Pro Chapter. And Amy Bartner, who's joining us by phone. She is social media manager for the Indianapolis Star. If you have questions or uh, comments on this uh, program today, this issue, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in the Bloomington area. If you're outside of Bloomington, you can call 1-877-285-9348. You can also join live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Before we uh, we get with our guests, we're going to play a clip from uh, Governor Pence's press conference that he had on Tuesday this week. That the gross mischaracterizations about this bill early on and some of the reckless a reporting by some in the media about what this bill was all about uh, was uh, deeply disappointing to me and to millions of Hoosiers. But we're, we're making progress on that. We're, I think it's, we're turning back. I, I'm grateful for uh, the expressions of support that are being given from around the country, including many in the media that are articulating what this is all about. And uh, we'll continue to move forward on that. Uh, and I... So, so I guess the, the governor couldn't have been uh, more clear in his disappointment with early reporting about this. And I, I guess I wanted to uh, go first to to Amy at the Star. Um, you know, Amy, have you had some conversations at the Star about how this has been reported? And and you know, what was what was the reaction there about about Governor Pence's comments? You know, we haven't actually talked um, outwardly about his comments and his, his disappointment in the media, which. Um, I mean, we we are the largest newspaper in Indiana, and we are the largest website news organization in Indiana. So, so we can't help but feel that that's been directed at us. Um, we we have a really huge responsibility, and we take that incredibly seriously. And we are doing what we always have done, which is what we believe to be spreading the truth and truthful information. Mm-hmm. So, we we haven't talked about that comment specifically. We are just going to continue as on. Um, We do not believe that we have spread any misinformation or done any false reporting or mischaracterized anything. And if we did, we would immediately correct that, obviously. 
Sure. Uh, Steve Sanders, so you, you've written about this. You've written and talked You talked to our paper about this. And I know, you know, after uh, some of our reporting early on about this uh, this bill and I think some reporting statewide and nationally, Dan Conkle, who's one of your colleagues in the law school, wrote a column that we published in our paper. He's since written a column for The Star um, that articulated his uh, – actually, his support for mm-hmm. the bill because he didn't think that it did what it was being portrayed to do. And I wanted to know if you could react to that and, and your views on this. Yeah. Uh, a, a typical lawyerly response, I guess. It's complicated. So we know from the circumstantial evidence why the most ardent, passionate supporters of this bill wanted it. Uh, this is a reaction to same-sex marriage. This is to allow um, the Christian business owner to be able to turn away uh, business from a gay wedding or a gay customer and not have to suffer any consequences in the cities like Indianapolis and Bloomington that have gay rights ordinances. We know that that's why these organizations wanted this law. All you have to do is read their websites and their Twitter feeds for the past few months and so forth. Now, the misunderstanding came in the form of oversimplifications, that this was the only thing RIFRA did. This is one potential application of a law that has applications in lots of other contexts, uh, potentially. And there was also misinformation that with the passage of this law, it would immediately be open season to discriminate without consequences. The truth is you'd have to be sued under the law. You'd have to go to court. You'd have to persuade a judge that your religious interests trumped the government's interests in its law. So I've attempted to bring clarification by saying the situation is more nuanced than you have been led to believe. From what I've seen, though, the traditional media have done a reasonable and responsible job in reporting about what this law is about. I think it's social media that may be more what the governor was talking about. Things do get boiled down and oversimplified and sloganeered and bumper stickered uh, when your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed is blowing up about something like this. So there was a fair amount of misinformation and oversimplification, I think, spread in those avenues. I think that's different from the reporting that Amy and her colleagues and you and your colleagues and others have actually done about the issue. All right. Uh, so Rebecca Townsend is with the Society of Professional Journalists, the Indiana Pro Chapter. So from you know your organization's point of view, you've been observing this, I'm sure, very uh, with a lot of interest, your perspective. Well, let's, let's be clear. I'm here as an individual today who, okay. who, who holds that office, but I don't think there's any one position of SPJ Indiana. Um, in fact, I've been watching from the sidelines. I've, I've done several years of state house reporting, and I've, I could see what was building up to this this year. And I would have been covering this on the front lines uh, last year, but uh, this year I was actually watching my husband read his Twitter feed, and that was how I, the, the news was broke to me each day. And it was ironic because you could predict a lot of this in, in terms of the coverage, not to not to put a judgment on whether it's good or bad, just to say that these political forces have been in play for a long time, and that uh, even though this issue involves religion and discrimination and LGBT rights, uh, fundamentally, um, we've got a political situation here, a, a bill brought about by lobbyists that have been pushing these type of issues for a long time, and uh, politicians that seem to bend to their will on a on a pretty frequent basis, and uh, we see the predictable fallout. It just happens on a this happened on a massive scale that quite <laughs> it's kind of a new level of scale of reaction this time. So, so this week alone, we've seen this as the top story on all the cable news networks, the BBC. We've had reporters. We had a reporter on um, a call-in show in Scotland this morning. But as this bill was making it through the legislative session. It didn't seem like anybody was talking about it. So I'm wondering what changed in your perspective. It seems as though when something gets to the governor's desk, uh, suddenly it's focused. You know, I, I, so far as I know, this was actually not part of Mike Pence's legislative agenda. It's something we could easily imagine he would support, given his ideology, given his background, and so forth. But I think it's you know, when something's in the legislature, people think, oh, it's complicated. I don't have to read a bill. But it something crystallizes when it gets to the governor's desk, and you know, the buck stops there. And, and that's when people suddenly started paying attention to it because it was easy to say. This is Mike Pence's religious discrimination, you know, gay, gay discrimination bill. 
that might not have been, you know, totally nuanced and accurate. But I think just, uh, you know, it takes a while for people to figure out what's going on to understand the implications for opposition to get geared up. And uh, but when something is is on the governor's desk, it's a political moment, I think, that doesn't exist while something is going through the legislative process that most people don't pay attention to. I want to, to go to Roy Peter Clark, and I do have something I want to say about what Steve said in a minute, but Roy Peter Clark, so you've been watching this from Florida. You've, you've been to Indiana many times. You have a lot of, a lot of interest in, in that, but you've, you've been watching this from your seat in Florida. I mean, what's, what's jumped out at you about this? Well, uh, I work for the Pointer Institute, and Nelson Pointer was a Hoosier. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Paul Tash, who was the CEO at uh, the Tampa Bay Times is a is a proud Hoosier. So I'm surrounded by y'all down here. Uh, (laughs) And Tim Franklin is a Hoosier. And Tim Franklin, my boss, is is a Hoosier. And my best friend Tom French now is teaching uh, at IU. So um, it's been really interesting to kind of see, um, you know, sort of their their responses. Um, I would say that First of all, you know, I've, I've followed the coverage by the uh, Indianapolis Star uh, pretty carefully. And, and, and I want to say that I think it's been, uh, in general, um, excellent. And um, the, the page one editorial, which is, is not without precedent in American journalism, but is usually reserved for um, very special occasions, I thought was very interesting, very powerful, very creative, and uh, as the as the father of a gay daughter, I kind of um, sort of personally kind of applauded uh, the efforts. That said, I, I do think that there are some ways of thinking about this that get at uh, what journalists' responsibilities are, and I, I would I would uh, I would say that that uh, I would describe it in terms of the word frame. And so to analyze the coverage, I think you have to realize that when journalists approach a topic, they often, even when they're, they're uh, fair and, um, and not biased, th- they approach it through a frame. It could be, uh, in this case, there's a legal frame, there's a political frame, there's an ethical frame, there's a cultural frame, and we certainly saw a powerful business frame. So when people criticize coverage, I think it's, it's important to ask the question, how is the journalist framing this, and what frames of reference are perhaps missing that should be included? Okay. So as you, you, you mentioned the front page editorial by the, the Star, you know, when, from your perspective, I mean, when do you think that, that a newspaper is, is justified in taking a, you know, its editorial opinion to the front? You, uh, this is Roy. You asking yes. me? I'm sorry. Yes, I am. Oh. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, I am. Well, you know, it's it's happened. Um, uh, you know, I, it's happened on many many different uh, occasions, and I would I would describe that even when there isn't a, an editorial on the front page, um, there's often what I call an editorial headline. Um, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, famously in the '70s had a headline that said, uh, you know. President Ford to New York City dropped dead, or in the case of uh, Hurricane Andrew, uh, the Miami Herald had this headline said, "You know, we need help." Um, uh, I think that when the perception is that something uh, is urgent and powerful and potentially dangerous to the public good, I think that's when. Um, a move like that happens. And I think it happens rarely, and I think it's good that it happens rarely because then it stands out as something that's um, meant with uh, passion and concern. Roy, this is uh, this Steve. I'm curious for your perspective on this. Uh, I am someone, I have lots of friends. I started out wanting to be a journalist myself. I have lots of friends who are still in the business. So I'm somebody who's been troubled by the, uh, you know, what Gannett has been doing to journalism in lots of ways. As much as I applaud everything the Star has done this week, I, I guess I'm wondering, do you think it's safe to assume that the Star 
would not have done that front page editorial if they weren't confident that that was the mainstream of, of Indiana opinion. In other words, if it was really way out there, if they thought they were taking a big risk offending their readership and they were really going to be massively out of step with their readership, would a, would a, a corporate paper like Gannett have done that? Or is that a sign of where the mainstream is actually now running these days on issues of gay rights versus religion. You know, first of all, full disclosure, the Pointer Institute works with journalists from Gannett newspapers, so I just want to mm-hmm. uh, m- make that clear. Um, I think that it's, um, you know, I think that that um, my sense of, w- of uh, where ethics sort of comes in for a news organization is at that point where two uh, good things seem to come into conflict with each other. And so you have uh, issues of religious freedom, which we believe is a good thing, and then you have an interest, interest of inequality and non-discrimination, we, we believe is a, is a good thing. And so um, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. Th- uh, um, let me say, when, when I saw that editorial, um my cynical warning light or even skeptical warning light didn't go off uh it's such an unusual <coughs> gesture that i felt that um uh you know it was meant in a in a public spirited way but i think one of the things you're getting at which is very very important is that there reaches a point in certain kinds of um, in, in social progress, whether it be on race or gender, or are now with the sexual orientation, game things like gay marriage, where there does seem to be a tipping point, where um, journalists maybe begin to feel as if the issues of justice are more important than even-handedness, and then you know, what constitutes a fair balance and what constitutes uh, a, let's say, a, um, an, an, unf- uh, uh, an unfair balance or an, uh, a balance that really doesn't reflect um, either reality on the ground or the common good. All right, let me give our phone numbers, uh, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have a phone call from Bruce from Bloomington. Bruce, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I do have a criticism of the news media on their coverage of this issue, and that is they didn't publish the text of the bill. And uh, this came up again, or came up before, back in the 80s, with the Family Protection Act. There was all kinds of discussion in the Family Protection Act. And uh, you had a very hard time finding the, um, the Family Protection Act in print. Uh, a friend of mine had to search uh, for a long time and finally found it in something like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Uh, so I actually read, I found online through the Legislative Service, the text of the, uh, uh, what's it called, Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act, and uh, read it, and um, I can say in one word what's wrong with it, gobbledygook. It is nonsensical, uh, hard to interpret, hard to get any meaning out of, and uh, therefore... It should be opposed by everybody because we don't know, have any idea how the courts are going to interpret this. It is just the awkwardest language uh, I think I've ever seen. Uh, so uh, that's my comment, and I, I hope that your panel will comment on uh, the two points there. Bruce, I'd, li- I'd just like to say, this is Rebecca Townsend, and that we can always do a, a better job of uh, using the bill numbers and linking to the bills, and absolutely people should read in print what their legislators are doing and hold them accountable for what they're authoring. At, at the same time, though, as the, the token lawyer here, I've got to tell you, statutory language is always complicated. To the non-lawyer, to the layman, virtually every law on the books in Indiana, the federal government, or any place else looks like gobbledygook. It, it's, these things are technical, they're necessary, 
precision is important, words matter. But where I would get on board with Bruce is I'm not sure that I think publishing the text of the law does much good because you can go online and find these things easily now. But it is incumbent on very well-trained journalists who understand statutory language to be able to translate it into what it means, what it doesn't mean, and what its implications are. And if I could, if I can, this is Roy sure. uh, uh, from Roy from Florida. Sure. Um, the thing that interests me about the language is, in addition to sort of the legal language, I think we, I think all, all of us journalists and certainly citizens need to have a kind of a critical facility to be able to sort of understand what I would describe as the sort of the propaganda aspects of the language of law. So this is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you know. Or in another case, we get the Patriot Act. And so the people who, uh, um, uh, the Affordable Care Act became something that got translated um, by its opponents into Obamacare. You know, this this bill, why isn't this bill called the Conservative Christian Florist Act? You know, I mean, uh, um, I, I think... There's that's what's really interesting is this sort of this tension between the ideological aspects of certain parts of the language and the technical legal jargon that's attached. I think that's a really interesting point because here here in our newsroom we have gotten criticism when we called it the the Freedom of Religion Act we, we got. We got criticism. Then when we called it the so-called Freedom of Religion Act, we got criticism. And I said, that's a good thing because both sides are thinking we're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what is the proper way to do it in those cases when you do have these bills that are clearly named to try to, in this case, you know, rally mm-hmm. that conservative Republican religious base. Well, I, I mean, I guess I feel like you, you, you know, people, a lot of people hated the Defense of Marriage Act too, and they would put that in scare quotes. I, I guess I just, I, I don't think that's fair. I think you've got to, you know, you've got to call it by what it's titled, that is the title of the bill, as long as you immediately follow up, I think, and explain what it does. I mean, these things are called that for a reason. I mean, in 1990, the Supreme Court essentially changed the understanding of the First Amendment related to religion and made it more deferential to government, less protective of religion. Congress passed a law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was essentially intended to give a higher standard, to require a more demanding standard of government and conduct that used to apply under the First Amendment before the court changed it. So there's a there's a historic reason for calling the bill that it's restoring something that used to exist. But then does that aid uh, does that contribute to some of the confusion too? If it's called the same thing as the federal law, but it's not exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do not think it's unfair to call it just in generic lowercase terms a, a religious liberty bill. Um, I, I mean, I think the key is to settle on some, you know, if you don't like the actual title of the bill, to settle on some kind of neutral, accurate paraphrase that describes the bill. That's something journalists get paid to do and to figure out. But when you start putting things in scare quotes, to me, that's editorializing. All right. Yeah. This is Amy Go ahead, uh, from Amy. IndyStar, sure. and mm-hmm. I, the part that I find really interesting is that um, we have we did publish this uh, a week ago um, when this all started blowing up. So, so clearly that's a failing on our end of, of passing it along and sharing it wide and far. And and there seems to be this misconception that it just doesn't exist online anywhere. And we're I mean on social media at wherever we can we're passing that link along and allowing readers to decide for themselves. And the the wide reaction is the same as Bruce is. I, this is in a different language. I, I can't understand this. Mm-hmm. So our struggle is is coming up with, and I, I don't think that we've done it yet, but we, we're working on it, is literally coming up with a, a humanese translation of what mm-hmm. this bill means, finding that totally unbiased third party who can translate it for us. All right. That's, that's a struggle. Yeah. All right, Amy. We'll be back. Uh, we're going to be back on the program here in a minute. We've got to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition and our discussion of the media coverage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. 
and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at wfiu.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're having a lively discussion about media coverage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which passed and then passed again with some adjustments to it. Uh, We have four guests with us. Roy Peter Clark has joined us from the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida. Steve Sanders is a professor in the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Rebecca Townsend is the vice president of the Society of Professional Journalists, the Indiana Pro chapter, and Amy Bartner is joining us by phone. She is the digital engagement manager for the Indianapolis Star. You can join the conversation at 855-0811. You have to use the 812 area code now, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join us live at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. I just wanted to, to comment as you know, a member of the media also that I think when the question came up about you know, where, where was the coverage of this, I, I would say I think that, that some of us, um, we just didn't pick up on the importance of that bill early enough. And, and I w- do also want to give a plug for this show because on Noon Edition, um, I, we asked Senator Kinley very early on, do you think a religious freedom kind of bill is going to get a lot of play in the legislature this year, and he said no. He said he didn't think that, the, that I think his words were, he didn't think that there was any, um, there was a lot of support for stirring up any talk of discrimination. So I think, at least in my mind, that sort of put it off my radar, but just in. But the, um, I, I, I mean, I guess there are two potential shortcomings. One, if the media, didn't pick up on why this was being introduced and why its most passionate supporters wanted it. But the thing I think has still gone largely unaddressed is, again, RIFRA is a very broad law that potentially allows anyone to challenge any state law or local law or practice that they think violates their religion. If somebody objects to the way I'm teaching constitutional law and they say it's a violation of their religious liberty to have to sit through my lectures about Roe versus Wade, they could potentially file a suit. Now, they probably wouldn't win, but that's different than saying Riffer wouldn't at least get them inside the courthouse door. Muslim prisoners who believe that they should be able to wear a short beard, even if prison regulations require them to be clean shaven, are a classic example of the kind of group that can bring a claim under this law. A church that wants to feed the homeless in a park when the regulations say no food allowed in the park is the kind of claim that can be brought under this law. So there's potentially a broad variety of maybe both mischievous as well as just and and, and fair claims that can be brought under this law. It, it hasn't nearly been ex- explored in its potential, I think, the way it could be. It, it was sort of made into a cartoon about anti-gay discrimination, not because of what the law says, but because of its politics. That to me is no, really I think interesting. Steve is, oh, sorry. No, there was a, there was a lower third on CNN right after the governor said this that said it, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but anti-gay law passes in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering just how much once the national media and international media sort of latches onto something, mm-hmm. how how does that then inform the debate and and even local coverage? Well, that that that's, I think that's what I was referring to earlier. That happens, then it gets boiled down even simpler into a tweet, and it gets boiled down even simpler into what somebody shares on their Facebook feed. So to describe this as an anti-gay law is is unfair and inaccurate, I think. Again, it, it, it confuses what the law actually says and would do from the motives for its introduction and passage. We should be talking about those motives and the politics behind it to be sure what's impelling this, why this law, why now. But to, you know, the law on its face is not 
it says nothing about gays, civil rights laws, or anything else. That's just one category of many different laws uh, for which this law provides a shield for a religious believer. Before I go to Amy, I want to play one quick thing that uh, Governor Pence said, because I think it's very relevant to what Sarah just mentioned. I think the Indiana press has had this right from early on, but uh, some of the national reporting on this has been ridiculous. I, 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 I encourage you to do a quick Google search on this license to discriminate business. You'll find all of it. I think that, that speaks to what you were talking about with the you know, anti-gay line on, on a TV screen or license to discriminate stuff. So that's a little bit of what the governor was talking about. Amy, you were... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, this, this is Roy, but Amy was, Amy's first. Yeah, let's go with Amy first. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, Steve, it was you who talked about um, what Gannett is doing with um, journalism these days, and, and obviously I'm a Gannett employee, and, and I'm, I'm proud of where I work, and especially more so in the last few years when we've really tried to reinvent journalism. And I think the front page editorial um, really encompasses that, and I think this, is, this goes to the national media versus the local media, where I live here, I go out to eat here, I pay taxes here, I am a community member. And one thing that Gannett has really pushed, and the star specifically, is that we have to act like humans. We have to act like Hoosiers. So we have larger stakes in this story, and we're not going to ignore those stakes as, as people, as humans. And we're going to express that to our readers. So I, I think that that comes across in the national reporting. That's what you see in CNN. That's what you see in MSNBC. All right. Well, I was going to respond to Steve's d- description of uh, of some of the the different aspects of a very complicated law and uh, my response to that is that um, well well those things those elements of the law and the potential consequences seem true and that there are some benefits and some problems related to it I think that we shouldn't ignore no one's ignoring, but but I I think we should understand that the national reaction to the law was sort of slicing through those nuances, which I don't believe were uh, the primary intent for political action and legislation to what we'd say is really going on here and which I, th- I think is uh, clearly a backlash to, uh, to gay marriage. And just as in the civil rights era, um, when all the voting rights laws were passed in the 60s, civil rights laws, what happened to the South? The South went from being um, a, a, a democratic uh, politically to Republican, and, and there's a big, big, we're in the middle of a big, big story, and this, I would, I would say, is a scene in that motion picture that's playing out right now in, in, our, Ameri- in our life, and our culture. I, I very much agree with that, that this is a moment in time. This was a defining moment. But, but Roy, don't you think there was also something of a, a trope here? In other words, would the national coverage have looked the same if this law had been introduced and passed in Vermont or in Colorado or in California? It's Indiana. People have a certain image of Indiana, and this, like, confirms it. We have Mike Pence as our governor. They have an image of Mike Pence. This confirms it. There had to be some of that going on, don't you think? Well, the question is, um, yeah, is that sort of, uh, the, the Florida, uh, there, are f- there are many Florida equivalents to what's happening there. And um, with a similar kind of uh, sort of political uh, perspective, um, for example, um, our um, uh, uh, state government, uh, people who work in the state government are, are not permitted, we understand, to use phrases um, n- uh, like uh, global warming or climate change. A- and so there's a huge political divide. It's highly ideological. Um, religion is part of it. Um, um, sexuality is part of it. And... Um, uh, it's a huge tapestry. We're going to need to get to the. Uh, we're going to go to the phones right now. We've got three callers who are waiting to talk. And the first one is Bob, and he's in Lowell in the Lowell, Indiana. Bob, hello, hello. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I'm enjoying the conversation. 
Um, regarding uh, the first bit uh, that we talked about and uh, the lawmakers' interpretation of the bill, do we know that they even crafted the base document? Uh, couldn't this have been produced by ALEC? You know, as so many of the religious conservative states have been using uh, with part-time legislatures such as we have here. And Rebecca? I'll take my, I'll, yeah. take, I'll listen to what you say off the air. Thank Rebe- you. Rebecca, it's <laughs> like you want to say something. Uh, well, there's there's been a lot of slicing and dicing by the national media, including the Atlantic, about how this bill mirrors or doesn't mirror uh, similar acts, the federal act, and then acts in other states. And uh, as, to, as to the media coverage of this issue, I think they've, they've done a good job of saying where things align and where things are different. Um, one point along those lines is how my my senator in, in particular tweet, tweeted the other day, what's everybody so upset about? And links to a Washington Examiner article about, well, there's 19 other states. Well, this language is not exactly the same, but it is a model, yes, that people that are aligned with certain lobbying groups uh, have been following. And this is growing. It's a narrative that is um, galvanizing a political base ahead of a presidential election year. And if Mike Pence can't be president himself, maybe he'd like to be the vice president, and maybe it would be good for whoever he pairs with if he's got this band of, uh, you know, um, family institute people to to ride the the wagon with him. Uh, so, yes, it is a model, but it's not exactly the same. And it's, I find it a little bit troubling that some of my legislators would think that it is the same. So I'm wondering how many of them actually read. All of it. I mean, I I don't think there's any question they didn't, you know, cobble this thing together from scratch. I mean, they borrowed the the, the base language from the federal law and the other state laws. Those things get passed around and, you know, key legislators and interest groups have them. So that was that was the base. But. Um, you know, they've also learned from defeats uh, that the, the uh, religious right legal groups have lost some lawsuits because the language of the state RIFRA that they were litigating under, you know, uh, sort of uh, didn't give them what they wanted. Or, and so they, they tweaked the rule. They, they learned from those mistakes and they tweaked the language in the Indiana law to fix it so that they might win the next case. So, yeah, they didn't write this from scratch. They borrowed it. Uh, and, and uh, the, you know, that's the way interest group politics works in a legislature. I think. And, and I, I just want to say to Amy, I, I would agree with you. I think that this episode has actually shown the model that Gannett has gone to in its journalism at, at, at its best. I'm still not sure about the wisdom of getting rid of copy editors. But, you know, I think this particular model of throwing everything at it, really being sensitive, you know, blanketing the local community, doing heavy social media, I think it's been superb. Steve, just very quickly, if you can, I know it's a complicated issue, but, you know, could you address this, this idea that you know, the governor and a lot of people have said, yes, that 19 other states have passed the, passed a law just like this. And mm-hmm. it's the federal government has a law just like this. But this isn't the same thing. Well, it, it's not the same thing for two reasons. I mean, probably, you know, 90 percent of the statutory language is the same. But as I said, it, it, it's been tweaked and fixed in ways based on uh, uh, court fights that have been lost in the past or done in ways to make it more likely that certain kinds of claims like exemptions from civil rights laws before the fix we got yesterday. Yesterday that would be more successful. So there were some strategic tweaks to the to Indiana's law that didn't exist in those other laws. And then the main thing is, I think, the context and the motivation. Uh, we know why we got this law at this time. We know why the legislature thought it was necessary to do this. It was pressure from groups that lost the gay marriage fight. So, so context and motivation also matters. Those weren't present in 1997 when Barack Obama, as a state senator, voted for Illinois' RIFRA. Mm-hmm. I have to say, when we in, in our coverage of Pence, he has said the timing was absolutely because of Hobby Lobby. So it depends who you talk to well, when they explain actually, the timing. And, and that's probably not wrong either, but but Hobby Lobby energized religious conservatives for similar reasons. But but no, that that's right. That was given as kind of well, it's not about gay marriage; it's about Hobby Lobby. But but lots of people think Hobby Lobby was problematic for different but related reasons. All right, let's go back to the phones. Derek is on the line from Seymour, Indiana. Derek, uh, hi everyone. I understand the the complexity of this issue and. And when you look at it, you know, it'd be really easy to take one point or the other by saying, hey, I'm pro-gay marriage or I'm against gay marriage or, or anything like that. But, you know, we can't paint the picture that that this is a new civil rights issue. I mean, it's not like anybody's going to hang signs up saying no gays allowed or, or anything like that. And really, if you look at it, you know, there's all sorts of ways to see this. I mean, should we 
allow somebody to be sued simply because they don't want to cater to a gay marriage. I mean, I think that's uh Well, we lost him. We lost Derek. This is, this is Roy. Yeah. Uh, if I, you know, I mean, it, in our li- I just saw the movie uh, The Imitation Game. Uh, in which the which Alan Turing, the uh, uh, one of the creators of the computer in in England, um, was uh, jailed for the crime of being homosexual, and I think um, you know 1972 with the Stonewall riots in in New York City, um, uh, I, I think it's wrong uh, historically. And I think it's also wrong, sort of ethically, not to see um, g- gay and lesbian rights, transgender rights, as being uh, civil rights. Now, it's true that um, if you compare it to what happened in in 1960s with uh, African Americans, there's not the same kind of... Um, violence on the street. There's not an apartheid system. There's not terrorism. But certainly in the lives of individual gay and lesbian men and women, um, the experience of discrimination of being the other and suffering from that is is absolutely real. Roy, I, I don't disagree with a word of that, but this has forced me to do some some thinking. So as a lawyer, um, I, I expect to be free to turn down any client that I think I can't zealously and responsibly represent. As a professional writer, you or Rebecca presumably feel empowered to pick and choose the writing assignments that you take or you know, somebody wants you to do a children's book and you say, I don't do children's book. I'm, I'm a writer for hire in some ways, but that's not my thing. You'd want to turn that down. So, you know, I can understand that there would be some times when somebody who's involved in doing weddings simply says, this isn't what I do. It's like asking a Democratic political consultant to work for a Republican. You know, I just my heart isn't in this. I don't know how to do it. and I can't do it. No, I think there are plenty of times when it's just, you know, you just want the florist to hand over a few dozen flowers for the wedding. That they don't get to take a pass on. That That is discrimination. That's mm-hmm. bigotry if they don't do it. But if the, you know, person's being asked to be so involved and so intertwined in the ceremony that it, it, it does become a real issue of, of, you know, professional conscience as well as religious conscience, I can't say categorically that that person should be forced to do it. Well, Steve, you know, I mean, I, th- uh, I, I see what you're saying, and I have to say this: as the, uh, as like I said, as a father um, of a, um, um, father of a gay daughter, I have a feeling that we can find uh, a lot of florists who would <laughs> perform the, the function enthusiastically. Yeah. Um, and so, so a lot of this has to do in terms of uh, a, a lot of a lot of what's being dis- discussed, sort of on the level of law and ethics, is kind of theoretical, and that on the on the on the on the practical basis. But it's but any time I sort of think the way you describe, I I do go back early, in an earlier period in my life and say that some of the same arguments could have been applied to things like interracial marriage and, and other other kinds oh, of things. No question. Which, yeah. But we're going to go to uh, we're going to go to the phones again. I'm sorry that we lost Derek. I apologize to Derek from Seymour because he got cut off inadvertently. Stephen's been waiting for a long time. Stephen from Bloomington, go ahead. Stephen. Early in the broadcast about the origin of the bill coming from these lobbyists that represent the conservative groups and who were anti-gay marriage. So I just wonder what. The panel thinks it would seem to me that when the Speaker of the House said and the governor said that no one who voted for this bill had any idea it would have an adverse or negative impact on gays and lesbians, if that wasn't somewhat disingenuous. Rebecca? Again, as, as as we've talked about often throughout this show, and it, it is difficult for journalists to figure out, you know, how to frame this accurately when in times of cultural change, and we can see the similarities between racial discrimination and at some point society crystallizes and said, okay, we're going to approach things differently than we have in the past, and and what was once. Uh, 
okay by majority standards is no longer okay. And and that's that's issues that the courts uh, solve, that the legislature solves. It's, it's all a big messy thing that happens in fits and starts. And on this particular issue, uh, Indiana lags the, the, the rest of the nation. Um, but I, I was... Uh, I was looking at the Indiana Family Institute's uh, Facebook page before I came on today, and they had a blog post that, that asked this question. In 22 years under RFRA, how many people have successfully asserted a RFRA defense? Well, zero, they say. So what in the world are the opponents screaming about? Well, the opponents are screaming about feeling discriminated. Whether whether or not this bill actually accomplishes discrimination, we know what the opponents are screaming about. They say, we've felt rejected by our churches. We felt rejected by society. Over time, we're over it. We don't want to see this codified in any way. We don't want to see our legislature wasting its time on this. That's what the opponents are saying. Meanwhile, you've got the evangelicals. Pe- people really have been put in situations where you know they're not ready yet they haven't they haven't had an epiphany about how their world relates to, to gay people's world and and that that's a that's a first amendment issue and it's an issue that's torn congregations apart across the nation and that's an interesting framework too to talk about you know what does this mean for christians what does this mean for republicans you know there there are so many republicans that are like well, we don't even recognize our party anymore and christians who who say you know our fundamental mission is to love everyone and judge no one well you know that doesn't seem to be too well <laughs> represented in this conversation either so um it just it just all speaks to the the difficulty of of facing cultural change and when when in fact the you see a wrong in the end or, or what you know when the, that sea change happens when the majority of society says okay this is wrong but then at the same time figuring out how to ex- without judgment and without screaming mm-hmm. without being rude <laughs> just say you know not everybody's going to come along at the same time on this and we may need to be patient and caring and have and have an adult conversation all the way through this process so that we can evolve as a society. And, and just because no successful lawsuits have been brought, as the IFI is trying to say, hasn't been from lack of trying. The religious right organizations keep losing them. But when they lose them, they tweak the language in the next bill that gets introduced. Um, you know, it's just it's completely disingenuous for these organizations to deny that they're champing at the bit. Every time the Alliance Defense Fund loses one of these cases, they put out a press release saying the message here is clear. Either, compl- you know, get get on the bandwagon with political correctness or, or lose your religious liberty. So, you know, we, we know that these organizations want, why they wanted these laws. We know they're champing at the bit to get into court and to win these cases. They can't deny that that's the context. You just spend five minutes looking at their websites and Twitter feeds for the past six months, and you know what's going on. And any legislature who, legislator who didn't understand that either, you know, w- was just completely out to lunch and wasn't doing his or her homework, um, wasn't reading these press releases that Eric Miller sends them, or uh, or, or was lying. All right, we're going to go to a call from Pam from Bloomington. Pam? Uh, thank you so much for having this uh, program and, and covering this issue. I also agree that uh, the Indianapolis Star coverage has been great. I've already sent a love letter to Matthew Tully. I'm just over and amazed by the the uh, bravery of the Indianapolis Star and this whole thing. But one thing I wanted to mention that I thought was lacking in the coverage of the litigation is that this law is so broad that it could very well affect uh, a 16-year-old girl going in in a rural community with one pharmacy to get birth control and the person saying, you're unmarried, I know this, I'm against underage sex, I'm not filling it, and she has no place else to go. Though she has recourse, she can file a complaint. Pharmacists can't do that. What's the likelihood she'll do that, little or none? Uh, she'll have other uh, corrective issues or not. So it's broader than just the same-sex marriage issue, which is very, very important. It welcomes discrimination in a whole raft of ways uh, under the guise of religious uh, belief. All right, Pam. Thank you for your comment. Uh, anybody want to react uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. I certainly underscore Pam's point. It's one I was making earlier that there are lots of potential applications for this, some of which might strike 
us as benign and some of which might strike us as more controversial and problematic. So some states, I think like New York, have actually passed laws that are intended to head off that problem that say if one pharmacist wants to say it's a violation of his religious liberty to dispense a drug, the pharmacy has to have another person available. Um, I'm not an expert on the pharmacist's conscience issues necessarily, but that does strike me as one potential application. And the problem, as Pam says, is if that, you know, now that this has passed, people will feel empowered and they may engage in acts of discrimination or, or, or religiously motivated acts that they wouldn't have wouldn't have occurred to them to do otherwise uh, previously, and, and that'll never be tested because most people aren't going to bring a complaint or file a lawsuit. I, if, if if this hadn't become an international news story, would we have gotten the, the, quote, clarification or the fix that we got yesterday? How important was the media coverage in terms of changes that were made to the law? Let's go to Amy first. Amy, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I do have an, an answer to this one. I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and to, to Pam's point, um, not to go backwards, but I, I think we, we talk about the difference between a professional journalist and um, just a, an average citizen on social media. And, and Twitter is a game of telephone. So we are reporting on these nuances of the bill and, and responding to that. But when it gets shared, that's not necessarily the message that goes from, from ear to ear to you know, computer screen to computer screen. So uh, I do think, I think our message was clear on, um, on the front page of the newspaper. I think you really saw... The power of, of I, this, is, this goes against everything that I, I do on a daily basis because I'm the online guy, but this really showed the power of the front page of the newspaper. And we saw that, that powerful, powerful image become avatars. And um, we saw the, the social media, human nature on social media take over and begin sharing that. And it was really hard to get away from that message. Um, I had Monday off, which killed me, but... I was following along on my smartphone, and it was impossible to avoid this message. So I think I think legislators saw that. We only have about uh, 90 seconds to go. So, uh, Roy, did you want to respond to that? Um, or anything else? Yes. No, I was just going to say <laughs> that that what was what's so interesting, given the given the the the, the nature of the complexity of this uh, topic, we talked about language. And in all subtlety, um, what could be clearer than the headline, fix this now? Three words, ten letters. Um, It says something about um, the nature and power of language. I I happen to have written a a book about how to write short. And in the next next edition, I think that's going to be... an example. There's some, given all the complexity, when the newspaper on the front page writes, fix this now, uh, it has this, this power that is much broader than the, the number of letters in the message. Roy, you may be interested to know that the, uh, the front page of the IDS today says, fixed, Asterix. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are, well done. Yeah, we, we, we are out of time. I, I want to thank our guests today, Roy Peter Clark, Steve Sanders, Rebecca Townsend, and Amy Bartner, for uh, my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, and for Alexander McCall and, and uh, Lacey Scarmana, as well as Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined. Addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.